1. A known Mexico record of five years exploration among the tribes of the Western Sierra Madre, by Carl Lumholtz. M.A. Volume I preface in the course of my travels in Australia, and especially after my arrival at Upper Hutterberg River in northern Queensland, I soon perceived that it would be impracticable for me to hunt for zoological specimens without first securing the assistance of the natives of the country. Thus it came about that for over a year I spent most of my time in the company of the cannibalistic blacks of that region, camping and hunting with them, and during this adventurous period I became so interested in these primitive people that the study of savage and barbaric races has since become my life's work. I first conceived the idea of an expedition to Mexico while on a visit to London in 1887. I had, of course, as we all have, heard of the wonderful cliff dwellings in the southwest of the United States of entire villages built in caverns on steep mountain sides, accessible in many cases only with the aid of ladders. Within the territory of the United States there were, to be sure, no survivors of the race that had once inhabited those dwellings, but the Spaniards, when first discovering and conquering that district, are said to have come upon dwellings then still occupied. Might there not, possibly, be descendants of the people yet in existence in the northwestern part of Mexico hitherto so little explored? I made up my mind, then and there, that I would answer this question and that I would undertake an expedition into that part of the American continent, but my ideas were not realized until in 1890 I visited the United States on a lecturing tour, on broaching the subject of such an expedition to some representative men and women, I met with a surprisingly ready response, and interest in an undertaking of that kind being once aroused, the difficulties and obstacles in its way were soon overcome. Most of the money required was raised by private subscription. The principal part of the fund was, however, furnished by a now-deceased friend of mine, an American gentleman whose name, in deference to his wishes, I am bound to withhold, the American Museum of Natural History of New York and the American Geographical Society of New York contributed, each, 1.000, and it was arranged that I should travel under the auspices of these two learned institutions. Many scientific societies received me most cordially. The government in Washington readily furnished me with the official papers I required. The late Mr. James G. Blaine, then Secretary of State, did everything in his power to pave my way in Mexico, even evincing a very strong personal interest in my plans. In the summer of 1890, preparatory to my work, I visited the Zuni, Navajo, and Moki Indians and then proceeded to the city of Mexico in order to get the necessary credentials from that government. I was received with the utmost courtesy by the President, General Porfirio Diaz, who gave me an hour's audience at the Palacio Nacional, and also by several members of his cabinet, whose appreciation of the importance and the scientific value of my proposition was truly gratifying. With everything granted that I wanted for the success of my expedition three passage for my baggage through the Custom House, the privilege of a military escort whenever I deemed one desirable, and numerous letters of introduction to prominent persons in northern Mexico who were in a position to further my plans I hurried back to the United States to organize the undertaking. My plan was to enter, at some convenient point in the state of Sonora, Mexico, that great and mysterious mountain range called the Sierra Madre, cross it to the famous ruins of Casas Grandes in the state of Chihuahua and then to explore the range southward as extensively as my means would permit. The western Sierra Madre may be considered a continuation of the Rocky Mountains and stretches through the greater part of Mexico into Central and South America as a link of the Cordilleras, 
which form a practically uninterrupted chain from Bering Strait to Cape Horn. The section occupying northwestern Mexico is called Sierra Madre del Norte, and offers a wide field for scientific exploration. To this day it has never been surveyed. The northernmost portion of the Sierra Madre del Norte has from time immemorial been under the dominion of the wild Apache tribes whose hand was against every man, and every man against them. Not until General Crook, in 1883, reduced these dangerous nomads to submission did it become possible to make scientific investigations there, indeed. Small bands of the men of the woods were still left, and my party had to be strong enough to cope with any difficulty from them. Inasmuch as my expedition was the first to take advantage of the comparative security prevailing in that district, I thought that I could best further the aims of science by associating with me a staff of scientists and students. Professor W. Libay, of Princeton, N.J. took part as the physical geographer, bringing with him his laboratory man, Mr. A. M. Stephen was the archaeologist, assisted by Mr. R. Abbott, Masros, C. B. Hartman and C. E. Lloyd were the botanists. Mr. F. Robin at the Zoological Collector, and Mr. H. White the mineralogist of the expedition. All the scientific men were provided with riding animals, while the Mexican muleteers generally rode their own mounts. Our outfit was as complete as it well could be, comprising all the instruments and tools that might be required, besides tents and inadequate allotment of provisions, etc. All this baggage had to be transported on mule back. We were, all in all, 30 men. Counting the scientific corps, the guides, the cooks, and the muleteers, and we had with us nearly a hundred animals mules, donkeys, and horses as we crossed the Sierra. It was a winter campaign, and from Nacori, in Sonora, to Casas Grandes, in Chihuahua, we were to make our own trail, which we did successfully. Ancient remains were almost as rare as in the rest of the Sierra Madre del Norte, yet traces of ancient habitations were found in the shape of stone terraces, which had evidently served agricultural purposes, and at some places rude fortifications were seen. In the eastern part we came upon a considerable number of caves containing house groups, the builders of which, generally, rested in separate burial caves, in the same locality, as well as in the adjacent plains of San Diego, Chihuahua. We found numerous mounds covering house groups, similar in construction to those in the caves. From underneath their floors we unearthed about 500 beautifully decorated pieces of pottery. Among the further results of the expedition may be mentioned the gathering of large collections of plants, among them 27 species new to science, 55 mammals, among which the Ceres Apache was new to science, and about a thousand birds. A complete record was made of meteorological observations. Thus far, Although the question regarding surviving cliff dwellers was answered negatively, the field southward in the Sierra was so promising that I was eager to extend my explorations in that direction. The funds of the expedition, however, began to run low, and in April, 1891, I had to return to the United States to obtain more money with which to carry on a work that had opened so auspiciously. I left my camp in San Diego in charge of one of my assistants instructing him to go on with the excavations during my absence. This work was never interrupted, though the force of men was now considerably reduced. The law prohibiting excavations without the special permit of the government of Mexico had not yet been promulgated. I was so absolutely confident of the ultimate success of my efforts, in spite of discouragements, that I twice crossed the entire continent of North America, 
went down to the city of Mexico and came north again a journey of over 20.000 miles seeing prominent people and lecturing to arouse a public interest. Finally, the American Museum of Natural History of New York decided to continue the explorations, the funds being this time supplied mainly through the munificence of the late Mr. Henry Villard, and toward the end of that year I was able to return to my camp, and in January, 1892, lead the expedition further south. My scientific assistants were now, Mr. C. B. Hartman, botanist, Mr. C. H. Taylor, civil engineer and photographer, and Mr. A. E. Mead, mineralogist and zoological collector. This time we came upon cave dwellers, the Tarahumare Indians of the Sierra Madre, one of the least known among the Mexican tribes, live in caves to such an extent that they may properly be termed the American cave dwellers of today. I determined to study these interesting people especially the so-called Gentiles pagans, and as this was not practical, even with the present reduced size of the expedition, I gradually disbanded the entire company and at last remained alone, by selling most of my animals, and a large part of my outfit, and through the untiring efforts of two American ladies, whose friendship I highly esteem, I was enabled to continue my researches alone until August, 1893. When I took my Tarahumar and Tepehuan collections to Chicago and exhibited them at the World's Fair, extensive vocabularies of the Tarahumar and Tepehuan languages, as well as a vocabulary of the now almost extinct Tuberese, were among the results of this expedition. Besides anthropological measurements, samples of hair and osseous remains, the great possibilities Mexico offers to ethnology proved an irresistible incentive to new researches, and seeing the results of my previous expeditions, the American Museum of Natural History of New York again sent me out on what was to be my third and most extensive Mexican expedition, which lasted from March, 1894, to March, 1897. During these three years I again traveled alone, that island without any scientific assistance, at first with two or three Mexicans. Soon, however, I found that my best companions were the so-called civilized Indians, or even Indians in their aboriginal state who not only helped me by their mere presence to win the confidence of their tribesmen but also served me as subjects of observation. As before, I stopped for months with a tribe, discharging all alien attendants, and roughing it with the Indians. In this way I spent in all a year and a half among the Tarahumares, and ten months among the Kors and Waikals. At first the natives persistently opposed me, they are very distrustful of the white man, and no wonder, since he has left them little yet to lose but I managed to make my entry and gradually to gain their confidence and friendship, mainly through my ability to sing their native songs, and by always treating them justly. Thus I gained a knowledge of these peoples which could have been procured in no other way. When after five or six months of such sojourns and travel my stock of civilized provisions would give out, I subsisted on what I could procure from the Indians. Game is hard to get in Mexico, and one's larder cannot depend on one's gun. As in Australia, my favorite drink was hot water with honey, which, besides being refreshing, gave a relish to a monotonous diet. All along my route I gathered highly valuable material from the Tarahumares, the northern and the southern Tepehuans, the Kors, the Waikals, and the Tepecanos, all of which tribes except the last named dwell within the Sierra Madre del Norte, also from the Nahuas on the western slopes of the Sierra, as well as from those in the states of Jalisco and Mexico, and, Finally, from the Tarascos in the state of Machokan, of most of these tribes little more than their names were known, 
and I brought back large collections illustrating their ethnical and anthropological status, besides extensive information in regard to their customs, religion, traditions, and myths. I also completed my collection of vocabularies and aboriginal melodies, on my journey through the Terracaliente of the territory of Tepic, and the states of Jalisco and Machocan. I also obtained a number of archaeological objects of great historical value and importance. In 1898 I made my last expedition to Mexico under the same auspices, staying there for four months. On this trip I was accompanied by Dr. L. Zerdlicka. I revisited the Tarahumares and Waikals in order to supplement the material in hand and to settle doubtful points that had come up in working out my notes. Sixty melodies from these tribes were recorded on the Grafapone. Thus from 1890 to 1898 I spent fully five years in field researches among the natives of northwestern Mexico. The material was collected with a view to shedding light upon the relations between the ancient culture of the Valley of Mexico and the Pueblo Indians in the southwest of the United States, to give an insight into the ethnical status of the Mexican Indians now and at the time of the conquest, and to illuminate certain phases in the development of the human race. Chapter I Preparations for the Start Our dry goods relished by the cattle I become a compadre, beautiful northern Sonora Mexican muleteers preferable in their own country a past story signs of ancient inhabitants arrival at Upper Yaqui River open Indians now Mexicanized a flourishing medical practice Mexican manners rock carvings, how certain cacti propagate, heavy floods in the southern part of Arizona and New Mexico, with consequent washouts along the railroads interfered with my plans and somewhat delayed my arrival at Bisbee, Arizona, a small but important mining place from which I had decided to start my expedition. It is only some twenty-odd miles from the Mexican border, and the Copper Queen Company maintains their well-supplied stores, where the necessary outfit, provisions, etc. could be procured. The preparations for the start consumed more than two weeks. Animals had to be bought, men selected and hired, provisions purchased and packed. In the meantime I was joined by the various scientific assistants appointed to take part in the expedition. The horses and mules were bought in the neighborhood. In purchasing animals much caution is required in that part of the country, as even men who pose as gentlemen will try to take advantage of the situation. One such individual not only raised his prices, but delivered in broken animals. Much loss of time and endless annoyance were caused, first in the camp and later on the road, by unruly mules that persistently threw off their packs and had to be subdued and reloaded. Gradually, I had succeeded in finding the necessary men, this was another hard task to accomplish. There are always plenty of fellows, ready for adventures, greedy to earn money, and eager to join such an expedition, but to select the right ones among the cowboys and miners of the borderlands is most difficult, by what appears, furthermore, to be the compensating justice of nature. The treasures of the earth are always hidden in the most unattractive, dismal, and dreary spots. At least all the mining places I ever visited are so located, and Bisbee is no exception. To get away from the cramped little village and its unsavory restaurant, I established my first camp four miles south of it on a commodious and pleasant opening, where we could do our own cooking. But here a new annoyance, and rather a curious one, was met with. The cattle of the region evinced a peculiar predilection for our wearing apparel, especially at night. The cows would come wandering in among our tents, like the party who goes about seeking what he may devour, and on getting hold of some such choice morsel as a sock, shirt, or blanket, Mrs. Bossy would chew and chew, gradually, to quote Mark Twain, 
taking it in all the while opening and closing her eyes in a kind of religious ecstasy, as if she had never tasted anything quite as good as an overcoat before in her life. It is no use arguing about tastes, not even with a cow. In spite of this drawback, it was pleasant to be out in the country, which was growing delightfully green after the rains, and gave us a foretaste of what we might expect. The last thing to do, after all other preparations had been completed, was to get into the camp three small bags containing 750 Mexican dollars, since among the Mexican country population paper money is hardly of any use. There was some talk about a raid on the camp by some toughs in the neighborhood, but we made our start and molested, on September 9, 1890, thanks to my letters from the Mexican government. I had no trouble at the custom house in San Pedro. I stopped a few days there, nevertheless, to buy some Mexican pack saddles, called apparejos, which, roughly speaking, are leather bags stuffed with straw, to be fastened over the mules' backs. Through the courtesy of the Mexican custom officials I also secured two excellent and reliable Mexican packers, to take the place of some Americans who had been fighting in the camp and prove themselves unfit for my purpose. As a mark of regard, one of the custom officers invited me to act as godfather to his child. I had to support the baby's head during the ceremony, while an elderly woman held the little body. According to custom, I gave 25 cents to every member of the party and to the child a more adequate present. From now on I was called compadre by most of the people in the village, and that sacred relationship was established between myself and the baby's family, which is deemed of so much importance in the life of the Mexicans. During ten years of travel and ethnological activity I had never met the child again, but I hope that he is getting on well. How beautifully fresh the country looked as we traveled southward in northern Sonora. The dreary plains of Arizona gave way to a more varied landscape, with picturesque hills studded with oaks and mountain cedars. Along the rivers Cottonwood was especially noticeable. There was also an abundance of wild grapevines. Everywhere near the shady creeks I saw the evening primrose, brilliantly yellow, while the intense, carmine red flowers of the lobelia peeped out from under the shrubs. But of all the flowers on the banks of the streams, the most remarkable was the exquisitely beautiful Datura Miloids with its gorgeous white crown, six inches long and four inches wide. We saw one cluster of this creeper fully fifty feet in circumference. It is well known among the Navajo Indians that the root of this plant, when eaten, acts as a powerful stimulant, but the better class among the tribe look upon it with disfavor, as its use often leads to madness and death. The effect of the poison is cumulative, and the Indians under its influence, like the Malays, run amok and try to kill everybody they meet. There is also found a species of cactus, with a root which looks like an enormous carrot. One small plant had a root four feet long. It is used as soap. Among the birds, doves and flycatchers were most commonly seen. One species of the latter frequently dazzling our eyes with its brilliant vermilion plumage. The men I had hired before crossing the border did not work at all well with the Mexicans. They generally considered themselves vastly superior to the latter, whom they did not recognize as white men. Personally, I preferred the Mexicans, who were obedient, obliging, and less lawless than the rough, mixed white citizens of the American Southwest. As an illustration of the moral status of the frontier population, I may relate that when about 60 miles south of the border, a custom house official stationed in the neighborhood insisted upon examining all my baggage, which, of course, would have involved a lot of trouble. He was neither worse nor better than other custom officers who seem to exist only to annoy people, 
and by the exertion of a little patience I succeeded in settling the matter satisfactorily, but one of my four men, who had noticed my annoyance, came up to me and asked if I desired to get rid of him, if I did, said he, he knew how he could serve me so that nothing more would be heard from the Mexican, I gradually weeded out this unscrupulous element among the men, and replaced most of the American with Mexican muleteers, who are far superior in that particular line of business, in hiring them, only one precaution had always to be observed, never to accept one unless he had a good recommendation from his village authorities or some prominent man in the neighborhood, the first village of any importance we passade was Fronteras, it is built on the summit and slopes of an elevated plateau and looks extremely picturesque at a distance, seen close, however, it turns out to be a wretched little cluster of adobe, or sun-dried brick, houses, not only the town itself, but also all the ranches in the neighborhood are erected on elevations, a precaution from former days against the bloodthirsty Apaches, not so very long ago Fronteras was quite an important place, numbering, it is said, some 2.000 inhabitants, but the Apaches, by their incessant attacks, made the life of the villagers so miserable that the place became depopulated, once it was even entirely abandoned, Many stories of the constant fights with these savages are related by the survivors of those struggles. Never was it safe in those days to venture outside of the town limits. Yet the conflicts did not always end in one way. And the Mexicans sometimes got the better of the raiders. Although it may be doubted whether the methods by which these results were brought about would come under the rules of modern warfare. One bright moonlight night an old man, who had himself taken part in many on a pash fight led me to a deep gorge where seven Apaches once met their doom. The story he told was as follows, a large band of warriors came threateningly into the town. They had killed two hawks and, decorated with their feathers, were on the warpath. As they were in such numbers the Mexicans realized that it would be useless to attempt resistance, and therefore sued for peace, which was granted. A peace banquet followed, during which Mescal, the Mexican brandy, flowed freely distributed without stint to the warriors by their wily hosts, who were abiding their time. When the Apaches were intoxicated the villagers fell upon them and captured seven men, most of the band, however, managed to escape. Next day the prisoners were taken to the ravine and scared, charges of powder being deemed too good for them. Only El Capitan, wanting to his head, requested, as a special favor, to be shot, which was done. Their bodies were buried in the ravine where they fell but too long a time had already elapsed since the event to enable me to secure for my collections the specimens for which I had been on the lookout. Yet I was told by the inhabitants that the ground about the town was so full of Apache remains that I should have no difficulty in gaining my object in places close by. A number of Apaches, men and women, I was informed, had once been jumped into a well. I set to a work at the place indicated and our efforts were rewarded by the exhumation of eight skulls in perfect condition. Besides many typical bones, the last raid of the Apaches on Fronteras was in 1875, passing Kashuda about a hundred miles south of Bisbee. We came upon a deposit of fossils. It was scarcely more than a mile in extent, but many bones were said to have been taken away from it as curiosities. I had already observed isolated fossil bones along the creeks on several occasions during our travels but we could find nothing here of value. Signs that the country was in former times occupied by another race than its present inhabitants are seen everywhere throughout the region we traversed following the road to the south. Here they appear frequently as remarkable groupings of stones firmly embedded in the ground, 
Only the tops of the stones the total length of which is about one foot are seen above the surface. Much as stones are used in parks and gardens for ornamental purposes, they are arranged in circles or in rectangles. I saw two circles close to each other, each six feet in diameter. One rectangle measured fifty feet in length by half that in width. Low walls divided it into three indistinct partitions. There was never any wall built underneath these surface stones, nor were there any traces of charring. Among the ruins found on top of the hills we collected a lot of broken pottery and some flint arrowheads. In several places in this district we found gold and coal, but not in paying quantities. Some forty miles south of Kashuda we turned in a southerly direction, ascending a hilly plateau 3.200 feet above sea level. Here we observed the first orchids, yellow in color and deliciously fragrant, and in the canon below we met the first palms. The rocks continued to show volcanic and metamorphic formation. About 130 miles south of Bisbee we caught the first glimpse of the Sierra Madre rising above the foothills, some 40 miles off to the east, its lofty mountain peaks basking in the clear blue ether, beckoned to us inspiringly and raised our expectations of success. This, then, was the region we were to explore. Little did I think then that it would shelter me for several years. It looked so near and was yet so far and as we traveled on southward the sight of it was soon lost again. We gradually descended to the Bavispe River, a name here given to the Yaqui River, in accordance with the custom which the Mexicans had in common with people in other parts of the world of giving different names to one river in its course through different districts. It was a treat to catch the first sight of the magnificent sheet of water the river forms near the town of Opoto, as it slowly winds its way through green shrubs. It is the largest river of the west coast of Mexico and is here about 1.400 feet above the level of the sea. Following the river to the south, we soon passed the towns of Guayzavas and Granados. The vegetation along the river banks is in strong contrast to the land in general. Here are fields of sugar cane, and in the orchards, orange, figure and lime trees grow in abundance. The country, though fertile, is dry, and the heat is great. Even at the end of October the thermometer sometimes registered 100 degrees F in the shade. The grass had become dry and scarce, and it was difficult to keep the animals in satisfactory condition. This territory was once in the possession of the large tribe of Opa Indians, who are now civilized. They have lost their language, religion, and traditions, dress like the Mexicans, and in appearance are in no way distinguishable from the laboring class of Mexico with which they are thoroughly merged through frequent intermarriages. As we passed the hamlets, our large party and outfit created quite a sensation and aroused the people from the uneventful routine of their daily existence. They used to surround my tent, especially mornings and evenings, as if an auction had been going on inside. Some of them wanted to sell things that would come in handy, such as fowls or pinoche brown sugar. One woman offered me three chickens for one dollar. I told her she charged too high a price, as chickens were not worth more than 25 cents apiece, but she insisted that she wanted a dollar, because she had promised that amount to the Padre for reading a mass for a man who had died in the time of Hidalgo at the beginning of the century. But most of the crowd flocked to my tent to consult me about their ailments. It was useless to tell them that I was not a medical man, or that I had not much medicine to spare carrying only what I expected to use for my own party. If I had given them all they wanted, our little stock would have been exhausted on the first day, but in order to soften my heart they would send me molasses, sugar cane, and similar delicacies. 
one poor old woman who was suffering from cancer even offered me her donkey if I would cure her an offer in a way equivalent to a Wall Street magnate's millions, for the donkey was her sole possession on earth. They all were anxious to have me feel their pulse, whether there was anything the matter with them or not. They firmly believe that this mysterious touch enabled me to tell whether they were afflicted with any kind of disease and how long they were going to live. A woman in delicate condition wanted me to feel her pulse and to tell her from that when her child was going to be born. I only hoped that my practical advice and the little medicine I could give them relieved some of their backaches and sidiaches, their felons, croups, and fevers and agues, and above all, their indigestion, which is the prevailing trouble in that section of the country. But I confess that I was nearly tired out with these consultations. In consequence of frequent intermarriages there are many deaf and dumb persons among them, and epilepsy and insanity are by no means rare. On the other hand, I was assured that such a character as a thief was here unknown. However this might be, it was certain that the Mexicans of eastern Sonora were a nice class of people. They were pleasant to deal with, very active and obedient, and I never wish for better men than those I then had in my camp nearly all of whom were from these parts, the people were poor, but genuinely hospitable, of course they were ignorant, and might not, for instance, recognize a check unless it was green, in each town, however, I found one or two men comparatively rich, who knew more of the world than the others, and who helped me out in my difficulties by going from house to house, collecting all the available cash in town, or what coffee and sugar could be spared to make up the deficiency. One thing is certain, I should never have gotten on so well had it not been for the friendly and obliging attitude of the Mexicans everywhere. As an instance, when the great scarcity of grass began to tell seriously on the animals, I was efficiently helped out by the courtesy of some influential men. Without any personal letters of introduction I received many services whenever I showed my letters of recommendation from the governor of the state, and had a hearty welcome. I was so much impressed with the readiness of the people to accommodate and serve me that my notebook contains the remark, I find the Mexicans more obliging than any nation I have ever come in contact with. It has been my lot to travel for years in Mexico, and my experience with her people only tended to deepen the pleasant impression I received at the outset. Anyone who travels through Mexico well recommended and conducts himself in accordance with the standard of a gentleman is sure to be agreeably surprised by the hospitality and helpfulness of the people, high and low, and it is not a meaningless phrase of politeness only by which a Mexican places his house at your disposal, it is of the